Greetings, and welcome to episode 40 of A Grim Podcast. I'm Stella. Today's tales come from Japan, and to begin, we have The Bamboo Cutter's Tale, which tells of a beautiful girl and a lonely couple. Next, we have Sleepyhead Taro, which talks about a lazy, tired man. Not unlike myself. (laughs) Um, I'm really slow at doing things, and I kind of almost always feel like... I'm lazy and or tired, so I'm not alone. I think it's it's good to know that the Japanese are reflecting on this. <laughs> so, without further ado, let's start reading. Long, long ago, deep in a bamboo forest, there lived an old man and his wife. Though the forest was a lovely place, life was rather dreary and lonely for the old couple, for they were very poor and had no children of their own to love and care for. The old man spent his days outdoors cutting bamboo. He used the bamboo to make baskets, tableware, hats, and other goods, which he sold to the people in town. We no longer know what the old man's real name was, but in those days everyone simply called him the bamboo cutter. And this is the story of a wondrous thing that happened to him and his wife. One day, the old man was walking through a dark thicket looking for good, straight bamboo to cut when he noticed a golden halo of light shining in the darkness. It seemed to come from a single, slender bamboo plant. The old man was astonished. In all his years of cutting bamboo, he'd never run across anything like this, and he decided to cut open the plant to see what made it shine so. He took out his axe and felled the bamboo with one stroke, and you'll never believe what he found. Inside the hollow stem was a tiny baby girl. She was only about three inches high, and she was the cutest thing the old man had ever seen. He lifted the wee girl gently in his palm and carried her back to his house. The moment he got home, he called to his wife. Look what God has sent us, he said, our very own daughter. Goodness, gasped the old woman, isn't she beautiful? The old man explained the miraculous way in which he'd found the girl, and he dis- and his wife decided upon a name for her. Kaguya Hime, which means Radiant Princess. And that wasn't the end of the miracles. Almost every day from then on, the old man would come across bamboo plants that glowed with the same golden light. But when he cut these, there were never any little girls inside. Instead, there were piles of gold coins. Before long, the old couple were very, very wealthy indeed. That, of course, allowed them to raise Kaguya Hime in a manner befitting of a true princess. Kaguya Hime grew astonishingly fast, and sometimes as much as an inch in a single day. And each day she seemed more radiant and full of life. The old man would watch her racing along with a pinwheel in her hand or chasing dragonflies from flower to flower, and his heart would fill with joy. There's nothing I wouldn't do for that little girl, he often thought. Of course, she wasn't a little girl for very long. In just three months, Kaguya Hime had become a mature young maiden so beautiful that one wondered if she could possibly be of this world. Her extraordinary beauty made any man who happened to look upon her fall hopelessly in love. Word of the bamboo cutter's lovely daughter spread quickly throughout the land, and rich young noblemen were soon beating a path to her door to ask for her hand in marriage. But Kaguya Hime refused to see them. I shall never marry, she told the old man and his wife. I'll never willingly leave your side. The old man was secretly gladdened by her words, for he loved Kaguya Hime, 
just as much as any father ever has ever loved his child, and dreaded the thought of losing her. But five of the suitors, five young men of great wealth and standing, were especially persistent. They camped outside the door day and night, pleading for a chance to see Kaguyahime. The old man was at a loss as to how to discourage these earnest young noblemen, and as time went by, he began to feel sorry for them. At last, he asked his daughter to choose one as her husband. Very well, said Kaguyahime softly. Then I shall marry the one who brings what I asked. Tell the first to bring me a golden bow laden with the fruit of a living amber. The second is to bring an animal skin fur of purest gold. Each of Kaguya-hime's demands were more impossible than the last. A fan that shines like the rising sun, a necklace made of dragon's eyes, paper lights up, that lights up the darkness. The old man carried his daughter's message to the suitors, and the five young men set off immediately, each vowing to return with the gift Kaguya-hime had requested. He was sure they'd soon abandon all hope of marrying her. Imagine his surprise when, months later, all five returned with the fabulous treasures demanded of them. The amber fruit, the golden fur, the shining fan, the dragon's eye necklace, and the luminous paper. Each was a marvel to behold. But when the gifts were brought before Kaguya-hime, she pronounced them all worthless. And indeed, her own natural beauty so outshone the glittering baubles that the suitors were forced to admit that they were fakes. The young men left the house dejected and heartbroken, never to see their beloved princess again. The old man was relieved that the matter was finally settled and that his beautiful daughter would not have to marry and move away. But his happiness was to be short-lived. In the eighth month of that year, a change began to, came o to come over Kaguya-hime. Night after night, she'd sit and gaze at the moon waxing even fuller in the sky. And even as the moon grew brighter, the look in Kaguya-hime's became even more wistful and melancholy. Seeing this, the old man and woman began to worry. Kaguya-hime, Kaguya-hime, what is it that makes you so sad, they asked. Kaguya-hime burst into tears and laid her head on the old woman's lap. Oh, I wish I could stay with you forever, she sobbed, but soon I must return. Return, said the old man, return where? To the city of the moon, where I was born. The city of the moon? Yes, now that I'm grown, they'll be coming for me. What? Who? When? The moon people, on the 15th night of this month, when the moon is full. But that's tomorrow. I won't hear of it, cried the old man. You're our daughter, and no one's going to take you from us. He and his wife wrapped their arms around the maiden, and all three of them wept. We'll never let go, Kaguya-hime, the old man sobbed. Never. <clears throat> the next day, the old man hired a thousand strong samurai to keep the moon people away. Standing shoulder to shoulder, the warriors encircled the house and even formed a column on the roof. When the moon began to rise over the mountains that evening, they lifted their bows and pointed their arrows towards the sky. The old man and woman, meanwhile, sat with Kaguya-hime on the innermost room of the house. Once the large round moon had risen fully, it cast a brilliant halo of light upon the stolid samurai, who now began to let fly their arrows. But the arrows vanished in midair, and the moonbeams pierced the warrior's armor, paralyzing them where they stood. Then, from out of that unearthly light, two moon maidens appeared with a winged horse and chariot descending toward the house. 
At the same time, the door to the inner room slid open by itself, and Kaguya Hime rose and walked outside as if drawn by some invisible force. The old men and women realized that there was nothing they could do to keep her from leaving. Kaguya Hime, they cried, running outside behind her. If you must go, take us with you. I wish I could. You have no idea how much I'll miss you. Please take this as a token of my gratitude for the love you showed me. So saying, Kaguya Hime dropped a pouch on the ground. The medicine inside, she said, will keep you from ever growing older. May you always be healthy and happy. Goodbye. Kaguya Hime stepped into the silver chariot, and the winged horse shook its mane and leaped into the sky. With tears streaming down their faces, the old bamboo cutter and his wife watched the horse, the chariot, and the heavenly maidens disappear in the light of the moon. Later that night, the old couple stood beside a small fire they'd built outside. The old man was holding the magic pouch that Kaguya Hime had left behind. So with this medicine, we can live forever, he sighed, looking up at the bright full moon. But without you, Kaguya Hime, how could we ever be happy again? And what good is life without happiness? And with these words, he tossed the pouch into the fire. So this this story was really sad at the end, where Kaguya Hime has to leave. Um, and they are just so heartbroken that they decide, well, without her, we're never going to be happy. So they decide that they would rather die than not have someone in their lives. And I think that's real dedication like they really loved her and it was kind of like a a motherly fatherly love and I think I think that was really it was really bittersweet at the end so it was more than just she was more than just a moon princess to them so I really liked that story Alright, so now let's move on to Sleepyhead Taro. Alright, so before we start, I just want to let you guys know that this story is a little bit weird. So, I apologize if it makes you uncomfortable. (laughs) But anyways, let's go ahead and start reading. Long, long ago, in a little village in the mountains, there lived a very unusual man. The man's name was Taro, but everyone in the village called him Sleepyhead, and they called him that for a very good reason. Sleepyhead Taro never worked in the fields with the other villagers, nor did he go to the mountains to hunt and fish. All he ever did, in fact, was sleep. Day and night, night and day, he lay on his mat and snored. Mushrooms had sprouted on the dark, damp floor around Sleepyhead's mat, and each day a family of mice would come to gather them. Sometimes the baby mice would scamper about in Taro's clothes, playing hide-and-seek, but even then he didn't wake up. Often the village children would come to play tricks on the sleeping man. They'd tickle his nose, tug on his arms and legs, even bounce up and down on his belly. But Taro would just go on snoring. Whenever the grown-ups caught their children teasing Taro, they'd get very angry. Stay away from that worthless lazy bones, they'd shout. Do you want to catch the sleeping sickness? You can hardly blame them for looking down on Taro. After all, he had done nothing but snooze for three long years. He probably 
would have starved if it weren't for his poor old mother. She worked as a servant in the village chief's house, and though her wages were meager, she always made sure her son had enough to eat. Every evening, Taro, she'd go to Taro's hut and set a rice ball down beside him. Taro's nose would begin to twitch, and he'd grow up around in the dark till he'd found the tree. Then he'd stuff it into his mouth and chew. All this without even waking up. Much as he loved to sleep, however, once every ten days or so, Taro would get up, stumble outside, and climb to the top of the cliff near his house. Maybe you can guess why. That's right, everybody's got to go sooner or later. And imagine how bad you'd want to go after ten whole days. For what seemed like hours, Sleepyhead Taro would stand there at the top of the cliff, relieving himself. Sometimes a rainbow would form up in the sky, and people in the village would look up, shake their heads, and say, There he goes again. From the cliff, Sleepyhead Taro's stream would flow out in a great arc, then on the other side of the river, and rush down the slope toward the village, carving great furrows in the ground as it went. There were dozens of these furrows running through the village by now. Not only is he lazy, the villagers would grumble, he's crude and filthy too, and he's washing away our precious soil. As soon as he was done, of course, Sleepyhead Taro would stumble back into his hut, flop down on his mat, and go back to sleep. Month after month, through all kinds of weather, he'd snore and snore and snore. The longer this went on, the more people in the village came to hate him. And when the rain stopped falling in the third summer of Taro's great sleep, the people were quick to blame it on him. All summer long, day after day, the sun was beating down mercilessly. The earth was cracked and dry, and the crops were withering in the fields. It was the worst drought in the history of the village, and though the people prayed for rain, their prayers went unanswered. What could they do? Soon they'd have nothing to eat. Sleepy Taro, for his part, went right on sleeping. The only difference was that he hadn't taken one of his famous walks to the cliff for over a month now. Not that anyone noticed at first, mind you. They were all much too worried about themselves to give any thought to someone so lazy and useless. They'd forgotten all about him, in fact, until the night the village chief called them to his house for a meeting. My fellow villagers, the chief announced, heaven knows we've done all we can to save the village. But work and pray as we might, the, vil the drought goes on. There can only be one reason for this. The gods are angry with us. Why? I'll tell you why. It's because there's a cursed sinner in our midst. And as long as he lives here, I believe this drought will continue. The villagers looked at each other, murmuring and nodding. Then they turned to stare coldly at Sleepyhead Tao's poor mother, who bowed her head and cringed in the corner. The chief's right, someone said. While all of us are suffering, that lazy bum Sleepyhead Tao is snoring away with a silly grin on his face. Sprawled out on the floor of his hut for three years. No wonder the gods are angry. It's up to us to punish him. Let's go. The people all rushed outside, armed with themselves with sticks, clubs, and stones, and began stealing up the slope to Sleepyhead's hut. They just got near the open doorway of the hut, however, when Taro suddenly sat up. The villagers stopped in their tracks and watched as Taro wiped a cobweb from his face, stood up, and came outside. Be careful, said the village chief. No telling what this devil's up to now. 
Taro didn't even seem to notice the villagers, however. He was stumbling up the path to the cliff behind his hut. When he reached the top of the cliff, he stood next to a great boulder, looked down the drowned toward the river and the village beyond, and began fumbling with his underwear. That good-for-nothing slug a bed, someone shouted, taking a pee at a time like this. Let's get him! But before the villagers could begin running after Taro, the village chief stopped them, saying, This'll be his last big one. Let him enjoy it, and then we'll get him when he comes back down. It had been more than a month since Taro had relieved himself. And once he started, he seemed to go on forever. It was like a mighty waterfall rolling down the slope toward the village, and the trench it left behind was as wide and deep as a riverbed. When Taro was finally finished, he sighed, yawned, and turned to the giant boulder beside him. He looked at it for a moment, then placed the, the palms of his hands against the rock and began to push. Little by little, the boulder tilted forward until, at last, it toppled over the edge of the cliff. And as the boulder fell, it knocked loose the other big rocks, and soon a great landslide was crashing down the slope toward the river. And when the dust had cleared, Look, one of the villagers shouted, the rocks have dammed up the river. So they had. The dam had caused the river to overflow its banks, and all the river ran right into a deep trench that Sleepyhead Tower's last big flood had made. Down toward the village it flowed in a powerful rush, and as it neared the village, the water began to branch off into the ditches made by Taro over the past three years. The villagers stood with their mouths open, staring in disbelief. The water, one of them finally said, the water's going right to our fields. The people started jumping up and down, hugging each other and shouting for joy. Water, water, the village is saved, hooray! And as they carried on so, a lone figure stood at the top of the cliff, yawning and smiling down at them all. Sleepy Ataro had spent three whole years fast asleep. But he wasn't just being lazy. He was putting his brain to work all that time. No one else had ever thought of digging ditches to irrigate the fields. With their new system of ditches, the villagers never had to worry again about drought. Every year from then on, no matter what the weather was like, they had a bountiful harvest. Thanks to the sleepyhead canals, as everyone came to call them, the village grew ever more prosperous. And as for sleepyhead himself, well, he continued to snooze as much as ever. But now, whenever the villagers passed by his hut, they'd stop to bow and leave rice balls and cakes and other good things for him to eat. Good old sleepyhead Tarl, they'd say. Where would we be without you? So before we wrap up, this is kind of funny because uh, they used to absolutely despise him. And uh, then he worked hard and his work paid off because he was thinking that entire time for three years. Um, and then he saved the village and now he's like a god or something. <laughs> so interesting what a little work can do, huh? Alright, well, that brings this episode to an end. Thank you everyone so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode, and have a great rest of your week. To our next adventure. <laughs>